Good morning, church family. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. That's um, located on page 500 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as a gift from us to you. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, as we said earlier, and we pray that it would search us and that we would be found out by your word, Lord, that we would um, find confidence in it and strength in it and grace in it, Lord God, that we would find correction in it, and Lord, that we would uh, find a, a way in which to walk by listening to your word. And so we thank you for that. God, I pray that you would do all the preparatory work necessary for our hearts to receive your word faithfully, Lord God. And, and Lord, I pray that you would also do your work in me to deliver your word faithfully. Thank you for this day we have together, and pray that you'd be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, I hope everyone had a nice brown Christmas this year, and it was uh, uh, that does not how the song goes, as, as I recall. But you know, I, I I waited till midnight yesterday hoping for a white Christmas, but no luck. So maybe next year, right? Um, I uh, you know we've been doing in the last few weeks we've been doing uh, messages that are kind of connected to Advent to the to the Christmas season. And I, this story that Landy read to us, I made a brief allusion to it a couple of weeks ago in my message. Um, but in order to wrap up our Advent reflections, I wanted to return to it and just kind of take another look at it. Um, most of you will know that only Matthew and Luke of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Matthew and Luke tell us of the virgin birth uh, in, in the, in, as a historical detail uh, they are, and they're the only ones that tell us anything else about Jesus's childhood or youth. Uh, for example, Matthew in his gospel tells us how the Magi from the east brought 
gifts to the, to the baby Jesus. To, they brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they brought those to Mary and Joseph's home. Now, they, as is depicted in your nativity scene, they probably didn't bring them to the manger because um, by this time that they arrived, Jesus was probably around two years old. So they didn't sit around waiting for those guys to show up. But it was just another uh, confirmation that this child was different. He was special. There was something about him. Um, King Herod, after this event happened, was so jealous that these men had come to worship, in their words, one that was born the king of the Jews because he thought he was the king of the Jews. Um, and their story about being led there by a miraculous star did not sit well with him. So therefore, King Herod ordered that all the male children in Bethlehem, two years, that's one of the reasons why we think this happened a little bit later in Jesus's life, but two years uh, old and younger would be murdered. Um, But Joseph, being warned by an angel, escaped with his little family to Egypt to escape the king's wrath. And, And they spent some time there. And with prophetic significance, they stayed there until the king died. This was a, this was Jesus demonstrating himself as the perfect Israel, the perfect Israelite, that he too would be called out of Egypt like the the people were so long ago. And from there, they moved north to Nazareth, a tiny little village in the region of Galilee. Now, Luke tells us a couple of other details about the childhood and youth of Jesus. Uh, We've mentioned this a couple times this season. Uh, He tells us about Simeon and Anna meeting the baby Jesus, the infant in the temple courts, and they recognized him as the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and and, um, even though he was just a little baby, they rejoiced over him. Um, Luke also gives us the text that we read this morning about the young Jesus, uh, 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 kind of a preteen, teen Jesus, 12 years old, in the temple. And that pretty much sums up everything that we know in details, historical details, about the infancy, the childhood, and the youth of Jesus. But this is what we do know. And in the, the verse immediately preceding the one we read today, it says, and the child, meaning Jesus, the child grew strong, grew and became strong. He's filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And those words that it tells us gives us really important information about the incarnation, the the coming in the flesh that that Jesus did for us. That Jesus grew and became strong gives us confidence that he was the Son of Man, that he was fully human, and he, he experienced life as any other child, that he had to grow and he had to become strong. And growing in wisdom and in the favor of God tells us that he was more than that, though, that he was also fully God, that he was, he was not just the Son of Man, but he was the Son of God. In his incarnate humility, he grew and developed in, in, uh, in his body and in his intellect by learning as other children do. But our text seems to say that we read today, it seems to say that there was a moment, at some moment in time when Christ the child became aware that he was more than a man, that he was literally the son of God. And this is not to imply, don't misunderstand me, I'm not implying that Jesus became the Son of God. No, no, no. That There was never a moment when Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, wasn't God, wasn't fully God. That would be an utter impossibility. Um, you don't become God and you don't cease from being God. You just are God. What, but what it means and it, 
in words much better than I could put it, uh, it means that in some matters that Christ veiled his divinity in accordance with the Father's will. Thus, the Son subjected himself to physical, intellectual, social, and spiritual growth. The Son of God voluntarily put himself in the position of needing to assimilate knowledge as a man. And if this were not the case, then it would be utterly meaningless for Luke to tell us that he grew in wisdom. Now, these questions about Jesus' awareness of his divine, his true divine identity while growing up with a fully human nature are not going to be our main concern today. We're not going to unravel that this morning, as interesting as that might be. But what I want to do with this text that Landy gave us is I want to look past what this story tells us about a historical detail of Christ's childhood and see what it has to teach us as believers as we are striving to live lives of increasing faith in a world that's fallen. And so we're going to take note of about three things in particular in the text. The first thing we want to take a look at is the piety, the, 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 the sincere spirituality of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly parents. Now, let's look at it again in verse 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now the Passover was one of the three feasts that God obligated the Jews to commemorate annually. But, but what I want you to understand about the time that Jesus was living in, things were so crazy with the Roman occupation and things like that, that first century Judaism was very much, sadly, like 21st century American Christianity. What do I mean by that? Well, faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his word, the elevation of the word, often in 1st century Judaism and 21st century American Christianity, often took a backseat to politics, to things like national pride, and they were more concerned with the disposition of Rome than they were personal holiness and keeping the commandments of God. But... In spite of that, in spite of that cultural wind that was blowing, Mary and Joseph still went to Jerusalem every single year just because they were committed to honoring God's command. They kept the feast and they included Jesus in their family's observances. They didn't think that was you know, stuff that he was too small for. They included him in the life that they had as, as worshipers, as followers of Yahweh. And they taught him the history, and they taught him the truths that were memorialized in these feasts, in these ordinances. So what do you, I want to ask you, this, I've never thought about this to today, but where do you think that Christ's questions that he was laying out before all the teachers and the doctors in the temple, where do you think those came from? When he was found sitting among them and listening to them and asking questions. Now, Honestly, you could say, well, he's God, you know, he knows everything. So he was kind of just, uh, he was kind of, you know, just throwing these things out there for see how these guys would answer. But I don't really think that's the case. I think that on the way to the Passover and during the ceremony of the Passover, that there were discussions that were taking place with his parents, with the people around them that were, that were making this child who was, who had discovered his divine identity want to know more. There was a hunger that had been birthed in him. 
I don't know where you fall on that. That's kind of what I see there. And what we, if I'm right, we see that his earthly parents prioritized the things of God at home. And, and, and this was, you know, very likely, uh, you know, something that happened that, that what, you know, they were talking about these things and Jesus had questions and he went to where he could get those questions answered. Now, and that led me to this reflection about this verse. And as a parent, I have to ask myself this, as those of you who are parents, I have to ask you this, how will you and I answer on that day when we will certainly give an account of how we pointed our children to Christ? Think about that for a second. Well, we have to admit at the throne of God while blushing that we were more concerned about our children's batting averages, about our children's GPAs, about their popularity, than we were about the Word and the house and the people of God. Now think about that. Just think about it. Now, I know you're here. Now, you know, there's an old thing about preaching to the choir. I know you're here, and, and I want to emphasize... It's very good for you to bring your children to church, but listen to me carefully. It will do little good if your children perceive that our version of Christianity is separate from everything else in our lives. If Christianity is a compartment that we have that doesn't affect the way we treat our wife or husband, the way we perform at work, the way that we live in a society, then it will mean nothing to them. It will just be another thing, like your hobby or your interest. It, it won't matter to them unless they see it matter to you. And there's, So you've got to ask yourself, when you think about your faith in Christ, are there things visible to your children that you obviously care much more about? Because your kids need a much more genuine experience of Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that your kids need you to talk about Christ. They need you to explore the mysteries of the word with them. They need you to speak about what it really means to be saved, what it really means to hate sin and to love righteousness. They need to see that you really believe that this world is fading away. There's no necessity to put down stakes in this world as it is because it's fading away and that your pursuits are eternal. Now, I, I'm not here, I, I, you know, this, this comes right back to me. I'm not here to beat anybody up. I'm aware of how intimidating this can be. I know, I know it. Especially if you don't consider yourself to be familiar enough with the answers to your children's questions, or if we're being honest, with the answers to your own questions. Or if you don't even know where to start teaching them the contents of the Bible. So let me just make a few suggestions, hopefully helpful to you. And I want to tell you, first of all, with a, with a pledge, that our church, if you're a member here, if you're someone who goes here, our church is 100% committed to helping you do this well. Because none of us do it perfectly, but all of us together can do it better than any of us can do on our own. Amen to that? So first, the first suggestion I have to you, if you want to make a commitment, you know, it's 
what is it? It's New Year resolution time, right? So this is a great New Year's resolution. Make a resolution to, to give Christ to your children in 2022. And if you want to make that commitment, here's my thing, and it may blow your mind, but start as early as possible. Don't wait till they're in elementary school or high school thinking ignorantly that they cannot understand the things of God. Because that child emerges from the womb with questions about the world they are, that, that is surrounding them. And wouldn't it be best for them to be pointed in the direction of the author of that world that they find themselves in? Wouldn't that be better? So start early. Start as soon as they're born. Set aside time to talk about the things of Christ. Now, here's the scary part. You may have to turn off the TV and the devices every once in a while, but it's worth it. Pray with your kids. Don't be afraid. They need that. Pray with your kids. Read scripture with your kids. Let them ask questions. Set aside time to talk about spiritual things every single day, maybe at dinner or before bedtime. And don't worry. This is the thing that I want to just take a lot of pressure off you. Don't worry one bit if you don't have all the answers, because here's the big secret. None of us do. Nobody does. But demonstrate humility to your children. But just tell them honestly that you don't know. But with them, you're going to find out. You're going to search out answers together with them. Get help from a trusted friend. Maybe somebody that's a little bit more spiritually mature than you are. Get help. But don't stop talking about these things because your kids are going to learn a lot from the pursuit of truth. And guess what? So will you. That's the beauty of it. Also, some of you here have a lighter shade of hair than other people. And I'm not talking about blondes versus brunettes. Some of you may actually have a sense of condemnation right now. Oh, man, well, too late for me to start early. I already blew that. I want to encourage you, and please hear me. If your, parent, if your kids are grown and gone, please listen to me. That's, that's where I'm at. My kids are grown and gone. But if you didn't start early, start right now. Start right now. No matter where they're at, even if your kids are grown, even if they're out of the house, Maybe just humble yourself before them and honestly sit down and say, look, there are some things that we should have talked about when you were growing up. There were some really important things, but because of whatever reason, we didn't. And I would like for us to be able to have a conversation about some of these things now. Would we... Can I buy you a cup of coffee and let's just talk about some of these things? Listen to me. God is a God of abundant grace. It is never too late for our kids as long as God is merciful. Now, do you guys know what the expiration date on God's mercy is? Anybody? The Bible says, great is the Lord. His mercy endures forever. If your kids are still in the house, prioritize the Lord Jesus in simple ways. Simple ways. Like praying with genuine thankfulness. I'm not talking about God is great, God is good, let's thank Him for our food. Pray with genuine thankfulness for what God has provided over your meal. Turn off TV shows and movies that you know have content that are dishonoring to God's holiness. And let your kids, this is so important, let your kids see you worshiping, giving, serving, and encourage them to do the same as they're watching you 
Don't uh, put your, you know, the Bible says don't hide your light under a bushel. Don't hide your spiritual life under a bushel from your children. Let them see it. Let them see what's important to you. Y'all with me this morning? Also, don't feign perfection. (laughs) Let them know that you often fail in your highest spiritual ideals and be willing to humbly ask them for forgiveness when you blow it. Because let me tell you something that I know for sure, that blatant hypocrisy, blatant, unchecked, unrepented hypocrisy will draw them, drive them far from Christ and never towards him. But humility will show them the heart of Christ. And let them know in your dealings with your children that God gives grace which is what we need. Grace is what we need when we're at our worst. Grace is not some shiny present we get when we do our best. Grace is what we need when we're at our worst. And demonstrate grace and forgiveness to them in the real world, not just in theory. Show them what it looks like. When you need grace, show them what it looks like to receive grace. When they need grace, show them what it looks like to give grace. Here's something I want to say with a a sharp point on it. Dads, please take the lead in this. Take the lead spiritually in your home. It is epidemic proportions in our culture right now that many children grow up and abandon the faith just because their dads did not make them feel like it was important. And their dads did not feel like for their sons that it was, there was anything masculine about serving the living God. Moms, you are so important. And I would never diminish your role at all. But a child with a mom and a dad who pursue Christ will almost certainly have, uh, you know, will almost certainly follow suit if they see their mom and dad following Christ. If dad doesn't step up, though, mom, don't misunderstand me. If he doesn't step up, if he's not a believer, you should still be the example of gospel-centered faith to your kids to observe and to emulate. And thank God, and let me say this loudly, thank God for godly moms, amen? Especially, especially in the absence of godly dads. But God's perfect design for kids is to know that Christ wasn't just to give us a church, that you could send your kids to so we could straighten them out. But a church that dad and mom and kids could participate in together in learning and worship and serving and giving all of it. All right, I think I've made that point, hopefully. Let's move on to the next one. Let's look down at verse uh, 43. It says, When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group... They went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. This is our second observation. If you're going to show Jesus to your kids, you've got to know where to find him yourself. We are living in a time where many people suppose that they know confidently where Jesus is. So they just keep traveling. They just keep moving down the road because they're sure they know where Jesus is. They suppose they know where he is, but they're totally unaware that he is nowhere to be found anywhere near them. 
So let's ask our question. That may seem like an odd thing to say. We believe that God is omnipresent, so Jesus is everywhere. But what do I mean by that when I say we don't know where Jesus is? Let's ask ourselves, in our culture, where do we suppose Jesus to be? Some suppose Christ to be smack dab in the center of right-leaning conservative politics. Others think that Jesus lives in the on skid row among social justice. Others think he's found in the moral victories that you can win in the culture war. Others think he's found within their particular religious ceremonies. Other people think that he's found within their inner prophetic voices or bestsellers from some celebrity author. But let's look a little closer. When we look for Jesus in conservative politics, we usually wind up hearing him say these words, my kingdom is not of this world. When we're convinced he's found in social demand and social justice, he reminds us of this. He says, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And he calls us to worship him. When we boast of finding Christ in the middle of our victories against homosexuals and Muslims and abortionists, he reminds us that all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. And that we're not saved by our own efforts. It's the gift of God. And that reality should make us compassionate to all and free of arrogance and boasting. When we search for him in particular religious rights, subjective feelings, and in those who we esteem as more gifted than ourselves, we neglect the reality that he has given us sure ways to hear him and to know his will and to seek his face. And so we don't need some mediator between us and God. He is the mediator. So when we come to the end of these things and many others, We still have to search him out. We have to find where is this Christ that we've lost touch with. The best place to find him, I believe, is the the place where we first encountered him. Remember the the church in Laodicea and that message that, that Jesus gave to them? He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, what how can we apply this? When we truly encountered Christ, we encountered him where? We encountered him in his word. It's impossible to come to a saving knowledge of Christ without a rudimentary knowledge of what the Bible teaches about him. Romans 10 says this, Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Preaching what? The word of God. God has left us evidence in nature for sure. He's, he's, he's proven himself by the created world that we see. We call this general revelation. Everyone can see it. Everyone can recognize that it's a handiwork of God. But to know more 
uh, specifically who God is, who you are, and what God requires of us, we need special revelation. We need the scriptures. We need the knowledge that he reveals to us in the scriptures. This is what grace looks like. The fact that you and I can come to a place like this, or even in our homes for that matter, and open up a book that God has made sure that got into our hands that has the revelation of his reality and his truth and his requirements. Isn't that awesome that we live in this day? Yeah, we have... Uh, this is real clear, though. I want you to hear this. Yet to have the scriptures alone is not helpful to us. It might seem strange for you, for me to say that. But I could point you, and you know this, I could point you to many atheists who could quote from memory a lot more scripture than you and I can. Right? Right? It's true. So how does the scripture benefit us? If those atheists have it and it does it no good, why does it do them no good? Well, Hebrews 4 tells us, it says, For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. To find Christ, faith must be joined to the word for it to benefit us. We find Christ not when we read the scriptures alone, just when we open up our Bible and read them. Something else must take place. Faith. We must believe what we hear. If our hearts are filled with doubts and unbelief, if some Discovery Channel documentary on some mystery of the Bible holds more sway in our minds than God's eternal truth, then we're doomed before we even begin. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 points this out. It says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So how do you approach the Bible? Do you approach it apathetically, or do you recognize that it's God's revelation of himself and respond with, the, with belief when you hear it? If you search for Christ in his word... And believe what it says, a third thing will happen. It'll bear the fruit of worship. You can't discover Christ. You can't find Christ in all of his love and holiness, his majesty and power, and not respond in worship. If you can, I would have to doubt that you've truly found Christ. Whenever people truly discovered Christ, Christ's true identity in Scripture, what happened? Think about it. Their response was always the same. From the wise men from the East, from Thomas after the resurrection, to the apostle John in Revelation, all of them fell before him. All of them fell flat down in front of him. They declared him to be God, or they worshiped at the feet of their Lord. There was always a response to finding Christ. So let me ask, if you sought him in the Word, have you mingled what you've learned from what you've read or had preached to you with faith and belief? And if so, are you allowing your heart to be moved to worship? Are you allowing your heart to be moved to the kind of worship that's accompanied with singing, with shouting, with tears, with submission and obedience? If so, then be relieved and be glad that you found him. You found him. One last thing we should notice in the text. Look at verse 46. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. 
<coughs> excuse me, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why then were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The reasons these observations that we talked about this morning are so important is because Jesus is rarely where we thought he would be. Why is that? Because we're fallen. We can't figure this stuff out. He's rarely where we thought he would be. And more rarely, he's, he's, it was he found doing what we thought he should be doing. But where he can always be found is at the center of his Father's will, doing the work of salvation, bringing eternal glory to the Father. And that means that he is right now, at this moment, interceding for you if you're a believer. He's pleading for you to have the faith you need to look past this world so that you may be able to clearly see the glories of the next world. He's advocating for you, keeping you from evil, supplying you abundant grace for when you falter. He's not detached on a throne somewhere out there, but you and your needs are ever before his loving eyes. And where does he do this from? Well, he does it from his father's house. Now let's think this through a minute. Did you not know that he must be in his father's house doing his father's business? We've talked many times about this, how there's no temple in Jerusalem anymore. And therefore, Jesus is not right now in some ancient building in the Middle East. And if that's the case, where is he then? Come on, where is he then? 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. The triune God dwells within true believers, applying the effectual work and all the benefits of their salvation. God is not far from you, out past the stars somewhere. No, he's as close as your heartbeat. He's as near to you as your trusting prayer. Stop looking for Jesus somewhere else than where he has promised to be, dwelling in you, seeing clearly in his word, united with you by faith, fellowshipping with you through worship. If you've lost touch with Jesus, if you thought he was traveling with you and woken up to find he's not there, guess what? Go back to where you first found him and you'll find him. You'll find him doing what he's always doing, always about his father's business and his father's house. Would you stand with me? The last time in 2021 we're going to receive from the Lord's table this morning. And so I'm going to invite you to come forward. If we have helpers, I guess, helpers coming? All right. Uh, we're going to invite you to come and receive the elements, take them back to your, to your seat, and then we'll take them together in just a moment. Go ahead and come on. Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Once more, let's give thanks. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your body. We thank you that you died on a cross for our sins, that you have washed us clean and robed us in perfect righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you've given us eternal life and that you have an abundant supply of grace to to preserve us until that day when we see you face to face. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would extend your hand, I want to just read this benediction over you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.